invite you to turn in your Bibles with me once again to the book of Genesis today, Genesis chapter 42. Genesis 42. Joseph has been uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, He has risen to prominence in a position of trust within the house of Potiphar until he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and cast into prison. But in prison, once again, he rose to a position of leadership, gaining the trust of the jailer. And uh, he interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer was restored to office to continue serving Pharaoh, but uh, the cupbearer forgot about Joseph for two years until... Pharaoh had his own set of dreams, and Joseph has been brought before Pharaoh, has offered the interpretation, laid out a plan for famine relief, and Pharaoh has placed Joseph uh, in a position of power and leadership, uh, answerable only to Pharaoh himself. Uh, Seven years of plenty have come and gone, and now the time of famine is here, and that's where we pick up uh, our reading uh, today. Before we read, let's pause once again and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you for speaking to us and teaching us uh, through stories. They have uh, so much to teach us about ourselves. And uh, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would uh, work today by his word and spirit to to convict us where necessary, that we might live openly and honestly and joyfully before you. Uh, We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 42. Let's hear God's word. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, 
It is, as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let them bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in the sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, the man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this, I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said, uh, Jacob their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. 
If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. I think all of us probably have what someone has called guilt words. Words we would rather not speak. Words we would rather not hear others speak about. Uh, These words might be a person's name. They might refer to a particular place. They might refer to a particular event. But when this word is spoken, there is a twinge of guilt. Our, Our conscience speaks up. And condemns us of past sins. Guilt words. We all have them. And I suspect that one of the guilt words for Joseph's brothers was the word Egypt. And I think that actually comes out here in the beginning of our passage. It's very interesting how the story is told. The family becomes aware that there is grain for sale in Egypt. And Jacob looks around at his sons and they're all, they all have this look. They're all staring at one another. And Jacob says to them, why are you looking at one another? Get going. There's grain in Egypt. Go and buy grain in order that we might live. Of course, Jacob had no idea why they were giving one another that glance. It had been their secret that they had kept from him. But Egypt was the guilt word that reminded them of their betrayal of their own brother, Jacob's favorite son. Imagine that there was an unspoken agreement among the brothers that Egypt would not be named. That when it came up in conversation, there were you know, sideway glances at one another. But Jacob tells them to, to get going and to buy grain, and, and they obey. They, ten brothers begin heading down to Egypt, the, all of the brothers except one, Benjamin. Benjamin, the, the only full brother of, of Joseph, Benjamin, uh, Rachel's son, who, who died giving birth to him, Benjamin, whom Jacob has said of him, Son of my right hand. Jacob will not allow Benjamin to go down to Egypt lest he lose Benjamin as he lost his beloved son Joseph. Now we're we're hitting a we're we're hitting a transition point in our story today. So, so far, the, the focus has by and large been upon Joseph's experience and And what God has been doing in and through Joseph. But the story is much bigger than simply what God is doing in Joseph's life. In fact, this story takes us all the way back to Genesis 15. Where where God told Abraham that one day his his descendants would go down to to Egypt and sojourn there for for 400 years and be subjects to the Egyptians until with a mighty divine act of redemption, God would deliver them out of Egypt and bring them once again into the land of Canaan. The beginnings of that are here as the family will come down to Egypt. 
this isn't just a story about that. It's not just a story about Joseph. It's, it's also a family story. It is about the, the providence and grace of God in Jacob's family. That's why if you remember back to uh, Genesis 37, the heading that started this whole section off, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the story of God's providence and grace to this messed up, dysfunctional family. And God is working his purposes out. And so that's the first theme that I I want to spend a few moments thinking about uh, together this morning. God's wise and unfathomable providence. Uh, The God who is able to overrule the wicked actions of men. The God who who sends famine into the land. The God who sends a a man ahead of the famine to, to be the savior of a needy world is the God of wise and unfathomable providence. Every chapter in this section of Genesis is is meant to teach us about God's providence, God's rule over the world, over history, over the nations, over our personal lives. And it's it's as if to say to us, we, we need to learn this again and again. We need to look at this truth from from this perspective and then this perspective and this perspective to get it into our heads and into our hearts. And you'll remember actually in the the previous chapter, we we were given a sort of key to unlock the entire Joseph narrative in order to understand what God intends to teach his people in this story. You remember when... Joseph uh, was brought before Pharaoh to interpret his dreams. Uh, Pharaoh had two dreams. And Joseph said that the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams was a signal to him that the thing is fixed by God. That this is God's plan. That God will see to it. And God will bring it to pass. And when you take those words of Joseph... And you apply them to the entire Joseph narrative. You begin to see that all of the sudden. The entire story of Joseph screams this message to us. Because everything is told twice in the Joseph narrative. Dreams come in two. Stories are told and retold. And that happens here in this chapter. The story is told and then the story is retold. And I was tempted to. Uh, pass by the brothers telling Jacob what had happened, but I wanted you to see how this story comes to us in doubles. And I think it's the author's way of saying to us, God is in control. This is fixed by God. God is working out his purposes. God is in complete control. And so the story is being told in such a way to to get it into our minds that God is in complete control. Now that raises a challenge for us because for our experience, from our perspective, isn't it true that the work of God often seems so, so slow? Uh, 
you can read through these chapters of Genesis this afternoon in an hour or so. But it has taken 22 years for the Lord to get Joseph and his brothers to this very moment. 22 years. We, we met Joseph when he was 17 years old with his family. We, we know that Joseph was 30 years old when he was raised to power in, in Egypt. Seven years of famine have gone by and soon we'll be told that we're two years into the period of famine from 17 to 39. 22 years for God to work his purposes out and, and begin to even see a glimpse of what God had been doing these last 22 years. 22 years to see how God had providentially been ordering their lives to, to bring the, the, the benediction of his grace upon this family. So here's the lesson we, we must, must learn if we are going to live the Christian life well. As God is perfectly wise and he is working out his purposes in our lives, but sometimes the unfolding of that plan will take years, even decades, before we begin to see even a glimpse of what God is up to in our lives and through our lives. And the question for us is, are we, are we able to live with that tension? Are we able to handle the strain of 22 years of perplexity before things begin to become clear in our lives. I was, uh, I was thinking about my own life this week in light of this passage, and I, I realized for the first time that actually roughly 22 years ago, um, I was heading up Parker Street. Parker just down the road from here. And uh, of course, I was a young, young boy. I was uh, with my family. And it was during one of the most difficult seasons that my family has ever gone through together. We were in the midst of a family crisis. Uh, we just moved up from Florida, and we were supposed to move into a house on Parker. And when we got there, things fell through, and we were not able to move into the house. So here we are with everything in a moving truck, and our family has nowhere to go. <laughs> And I remember, I have a vivid memory, actually, of, I know the exact light. It was Eisenhower and Scalp. We were stopped at a red light. And I remember asking my mom with tears in my eyes, what are we going to do? I had no idea what God was doing at that point. As I look back at that painful experience in my life, I realized that that was one of the means that God used to get me where I am today. It was one of the means God actually used to bring me back to Johnstown. You know, fast forward a few, few years, and a, a few years later, I, I went on a trip to, to Philadelphia with a church, some church I'd never heard of, called Trinity Presbyterian Church. I didn't really know anybody uh, except a couple of people on the trip. But I remember on the trip, actually, I don't know if Dave remembers this, but we sat on a hillside one night and I talked to Dave about a sense of call to pastoral ministry. 
Fast forward uh, another few years, and I'm, uh, I'm at college taking a class on Romans, and I have a professor who mentions Reformed theology. I have no idea what that is. Uh, didn't, I don't recall ever hearing it before that. And he starts talking about John Calvin and how much he didn't like John Calvin. So the contrarian in me went and picked up a copy of the Institutes, and I started reading it. And that same semester, I met the love of my life, uh, not John Calvin, uh, <laughs> Kelsey, who happened to grow up in a church, PCA church, called Calvin Presbyterian Church. A couple more years, and uh, I'm at RPTS doing my seminary training at the end of my second year, and Kelsey and I had no idea where we were going to end up. Uh, we thought, well, we would have liked to stay in the Pittsburgh Presbytery to be near family, but we were ready and willing to go wherever the Lord would lead. And at the end of my second year, I, I get a call from a guy named Dave Carlberg asking uh, me to meet with him and Pat at the Olive Garden in Greensburg to talk about possibly coming to serve at uh, Trinity Presbyterian Church. You know, friends, every time I come to this building, I, uh, I drive by the house that we were supposed to move into. And uh, I praise God that he has long-term purposes. His long-term purposes. And that means for Christians who want everything in a hurry and who want to understand exactly what God is doing in the moment, that this is going to be very very hard for us to understand that God is indeed wise and his providence is unfathomable and God has long-term purposes for his people. So we need to learn to trust him because 20 years, yes, it is a long, long time to wait. But you see in this story that the plan of God is now coming to fruition Joseph's brothers appear before him. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. They bow before him, and the dream comes to mind. The dreams that he had as a 17-year-old boy. The plan of God coming to fruition. What, what an overwhelming moment that must have been for Joseph. And for us, when 10 or 20 or 30 or 40, or perhaps in glory, we come to see the plan and purpose of God and what he was up to in our lives. So that's the first theme I want us to be reminded of this morning, God's wise and unfathomable providence. Here's the second thing I want us to think about for a little bit. It's, it's Joseph's wisdom and discernment. You know, after, think about it for a moment, after 22 years of separation from your family, 22 years of separation from everything that's familiar to you, 22 years of being in a foreign, foreign land, don't you, don't you think that Joseph's instinct would have been to you know, stop speaking in Egyptian and to immediately begin addressing his brothers in Hebrew? Don't you think that his immediate instinct would have been to say, it's me and everything I told you those years ago is now coming true? Or perhaps 
Uh, perhaps it was a temptation. Here he is in a position of power now with his brothers bowed low before him. Perhaps it's time for a little bit of revenge. <laughs> but that's not the Joseph we meet here. We meet, we meet a different man. A transformed man. And he, he gives away the source of that transformation in his life in, in three words that he speaks to his own brothers when he tells them, I fear God. Joseph has come to learn the fear of the Lord. He's come to know that the joy and the delight of, of fearing God and standing in awe of what God does. After 22 years bringing his plan to pass, if there was ever a moment where Joseph feared the Lord, it must have been this moment as things were coming to fruition. And so if the source of Joseph's wisdom and discernment is the fear of the Lord, what, what evidence of that wisdom do we see here in this passage? I, th I think there are several different examples of how the Lord has worked in Joseph's life to make him a wise and discerning individual. It's seen, first of all, in the fact that he keeps his identity a secret. Now, he's not doing it for selfish reasons. He's not doing it to have one up on his brothers. As the story unfolds, and as we read it carefully, we begin to realize that the reason Joseph is keeping his identity a secret is because he cares about the spiritual well-being of his family. We're told that he tests them. He, he, he's not just testing their veracity. He's testing their hearts to see whether they have whether they've really changed, whether they've, they've recognized what they've done in the past, whether they've ever repented and had a real change of mind and heart and therefore action. But his wisdom is also evident in what Joseph says. He speaks here with incredible wisdom. And notice what he does as he shows concern for his brothers. He, 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 uh, he first of all, three times accuses his brothers of being spies coming in to check on the unprotected parts of the land. And notice what he's doing there. He's intentionally challenging their integrity. He's saying, you are spies. And they're saying, no, my Lord, we are honest men. Literally, we are just men. And Joseph is thinking, that's, that's precisely the opposite of what you once were. When you unjustly threw me in the pit and then sold me into slavery and my guess is we're dishonest these last 22 years with our father about what you did to me. And Joseph is, you see, he's reaching into their consciences to bring about the conviction of their past sins. And he's very wise in the way he does it. So then he, he confines them for three days, giving them a sense of what they had done to him those many years ago. And Incidentally, I, I think, as an aside, we should, we should recognize from this that God sometimes has to use and employ severe methods to get us to see who we really are and what we have really done. And the brothers had, had kept this secret for years, but you notice now... In, a, in prison and standing before Joseph, thinking Joseph isn't really hearing them, for the first time, locked up 
far from home, uncertain about what's going to happen next. Does that sound familiar to you? That's Joseph's experience. And that's where these brothers are now at. And in that position for the, perhaps the first time, they begin to honestly speak amongst themselves about what they had done. To begin to face up with the facts and the reality of what they'd done. And then as they're on their way back home, one of them discovers his money in his sack. There they are again, headed for home with money in hand and another brother missing. You see what Joseph is doing. It's as though he's, he's placing these little reminders in their lives to convict them for what they had done to Joseph those many years ago. And then we're told throughout this that Joseph spoke roughly to them. He, he knows that that's what they need in order to be awakened to their shame and their guilt and their sin and, and I think a major reason that Joseph kept his identity secret for a time is because he knew all too well that people can regret what they've done without ever really repenting and asking for forgiveness for what they've done. So Joseph's wisdom, it's seen in the way that he tests his brothers. And I think the greatest example of his testing them is seen in the test that he sets up with his younger brother, Benjamin. Now, Joseph knows that Benjamin is now Jacob's favorite son. You might ask, how does Joseph know something like that? Well, it's, it's elementary, my dear Watson. Uh, because you remember those many years ago, when the brothers were sent out to do work, who was kept at home? Joseph stayed at home, the favored son. And now here are these brothers many years later in Egypt, and who is kept at home? Benjamin, the only other son of Rachel, full brother of Joseph. And so what Joseph does here, he, he says, uh, I, see, I say you're spies, and the only way you can demonstrate your honesty to me is by coming back here with the younger brother of yours. And he knows exactly what he's doing. He's testing them to see if their reaction to Benjamin is the same as it had been to Joseph. How, how would they treat Benjamin now? And so Joseph is he's pressing in, he's pressing down, and he explains to his brothers why he's doing this in verses 18 through 20. He's doing this so that they might live and not die. Now that's a, that's a marvelous statement if we understand that Joseph is interested in more than the physical well-being of his brothers and family. Because that statement works at two levels. Joseph isn't simply interested in filling the tummies of his brothers and family members. He cares about their spiritual well-being. He, he cares that they turn from their sins and turn to the Lord and live. And you see, because Joseph fears the Lord and has learned true wisdom, he can now be an instrument in the hand of the Lord for the well-being, the spiritual well-being of his family. And that, that leads us to the third theme that we're going to explore further in weeks to come. But today, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's God's wise and unfathomable providence, Joseph's wisdom and discernment, and thirdly, the brother's conviction 
and fear. The brothers experience somewhat of an awakening here, an an awakening to the reality of sin and an awakening of the reality of God in the midst of this situation. That's seen uh, in verse 21. They, They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw his distress of soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. You see, it wasn't, wasn't bad karma. It wasn't bad luck. They understood because they were, they were now God conscious. In verse 28, after they found their money and their grain, uh, they said, what has God done to us? Back in verse 22, Reuben said that they sinned against the boy and now a day of reckoning had arrived. One more example, though, in, in verse 35, when they, when they got home and they saw that all of their money was in their sacks of grain, were told that they were afraid. Now, it's interesting that, that the word used there for fear is the same word used to describe Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, this is... This is a guilty fear. This is a terrified fear. This is a running away fear. This is not the same fear that Joseph, just a little while ago, confessed in the presence of his brothers. And you know, it's interesting. Their admission of guilt occurred right in front of Joseph. Did you notice that? Joseph had been speaking through an interpreter, so they had no idea he understood everything coming out of their mouths in front of him. So you ask the question at this point, okay, they've acknowledged their guilt, their wrongdoing. Why doesn't Joseph just jump in right here and say, brothers, it's okay, it is I, it's your brother Joseph. Why do we have a whole nother long story before Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. I think it's because Joseph knows that there is a significant difference between knowing that you've sinned, knowing you're guilty, knowing that the Lord has turned against you and you can have on top of that loads of regret and you still have yet to turn to the Lord in faith and repentance. You're believing that there is grace And the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive us and cleanse us and to begin the work of restoration and reconciliation. There's a striking illustration of the difference between godly regret and, and worldly regret in the New Testament. I mentioned it to some of you a couple of weeks ago, Sunday night, among the band of disciples on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, there were two disciples who were weeping. And you know, if you, if you placed them beside each other and outwardly looked at them, there really wasn't any difference that you could notice. But, but one of them shed tears of sorrow that led him into the arms of Jesus Christ for forgiveness and restoration. But the other, Judas Iscariot, cried tears that did not lead him to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance 
but instead led to death. That leads me to say, dear friends, praise God for his severe grace. Praise God for his severe mercy in the lives of these men and and in our own lives. You know, contrary to much secular counseling today, feeling guilty is not always a bad thing. It is a good thing to feel guilty for bad things we have done if that feeling of guiltiness leads us straight into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ who is able to forgive us and cleanse us and make us new. And you see, God has used the the severity of the way these brothers were handled, the roughness of the way that Joseph has spoken to them to awaken their guilty consciences in a way that the the cries of their brother while he was down in the pit and the sadness upon their father's face for these many years were not able to get through to their hard hearts. You see, God is at work in the hearts of these men. He's, He's making them uncomfortable. And my question for you today is, friends, do do we believe in a God who makes people uncomfortable? Uh, Joseph has been an instrument to eventually bring his brothers to to repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, and transformation. You know, in Hebrew, especially in in storytelling, when the storyteller repeats certain words and phrases, it's, it's a way to get our attention and say, pay attention to this. This is important. And you know, one of the repeated words and phrases in this story is that Joseph spoke roughly to his brothers. He spoke roughly to them. The brothers said, he spoke roughly to us. And you know, it wasn't just some Egyptian who was roughing them up. It was Joseph. The the very one that they wanted to kill was speaking roughly to them and would be the one who would save them. My friends, see how rich this story is and how much it points us to the ways of God in Jesus Christ with us. Because maybe this is exactly where some of you are. Perhaps you are being roughed up by the Lord right now. Stirring up a sense of guilt and shame from the past. And frankly, you wish it would just go away, disappear. You, you, know, you wish it would come around a corner and things would get easier. You just want to buy some grain after all. That's what the brothers thought they were doing when they are coming down to Egypt. Like these brothers... Sometimes we have no idea who it is that's roughing us up. It's the Lord Jesus. Because he cares about us enough to care about more than our creaturely comforts. And he seeks us, he seeks us long before we seek after him. And one of the ways he does that is by introducing friction into our lives that makes us uncomfortable. One day he stands before us and, and says, it, it, it is I. The, the one you intended to kill. 
the one who has spoken roughly to you is the same one who is here to save you. My friend, my question then for you is, we all reflect upon this, is is God roughing you up? Are you uncomfortable? Are things not going well in your life? Do Do you have undealt with past sins staring you in the face? Do you have a Do you have a 22-year-old secret sin? It's never been forgiven. It's never been brought into the open and honestly, openly dealt with in the presence of the Lord. You've you've never confessed it. You've never known the joy of of forgiveness and, and restoration. What's this story saying to us then? I think it's saying to us, let's let's go to Jesus, the one against whom we have sinned. Because he ultimately is the one that we have sinned against. The one who's willing to, to rough us up and care about us enough to seek our eternal good. Let us let us go to our Joseph. Uh, who is willing to speak rough words to us and make us uncomfortable. To bring us to the place where we will go to him in repentance. Turning from that sin. With the assurance that all who trust in him will receive abundant, abundant, overflowing supply of grace. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father. We, uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who has been sent into the world to convict of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And we pray that the very same Spirit who will bring these brothers to confession and repentance would also be at work in our lives, convicting us of sin, not leading us to despair, but leading us to Jesus Christ, who is able to Pardon us of all our sin and take away our guilt and our shame and restore us and transform us. Lord, would we know more of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ in our lives, not only with you, but with one another. Uh, Do this work for the glory of your name and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.